Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 and read along with me or or just listen, uh, starting in verse 12. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Would you pray with me? Father, we uh, thank you for this opportunity to hear your word. We thank you for the opportunity to be together. And Lord, I pray that you would accompany the words that I speak today with the power of your spirit, that we might behold the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we might love him and be drawn to him and be changed by your word. Father, help us now to hear. Help us to not leave this place the same as when we came in, we commit our time together to you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, when my wife Katie and I were dating, a lot of that time was spent long distance. I was in Vermont. She was hundreds of miles away in Atlantic Canada. And I would do anything and everything to be able to see Katie. I would drive hour after hour after hour. I would fly her places. Once or twice I had her hop on this 17-hour overnight train ride. One time I had her sail across the Gulf of Maine in a luxury ferry to be able to see her. I even had her hitchhike on her dad's semi-truck one time, all to be able to see Katie. In fact, I remember the year we were engaged, I was leading music at a church plant in Maine at that time. So I was driving from Vermont to Maine almost every weekend. And what I would do is I would fly Katie from Halifax Nova Scotia to Montreal, Quebec on a Saturday, and then I drive up to the airport in Montreal from Vermont. It's only about a two-hour drive. Pick her up there, then we drive six hours down to Portland, Maine. So we get there Saturday night, Sunday morning I'd lead music for the church, then we drive back to Vermont, Katie would spend the week. Following Saturday, I'd drive her back to the airport in Montreal, she'd fly back to Nova Scotia, I'd drive back down to Maine. Now, never in all of this did I question whether it was worth spending all that time and money and energy to see Katie. See, the reward of having Katie had reoriented my perspective on life. The reward made me dissatisfied with life without her, and the reward drove me to do whatever it took to be with her. I was 100% devoted to making Katie mine. The cost associated didn't even factor into my thinking. And that's how great rewards work, isn't it? 
When a great reward, some goal or status or relationship or achievement, when that reward captures our affections, it changes the focus and direction of our lives. We become dissatisfied with life apart from that reward, and we become devoted to achieving that reward, no matter the cost. Now, in our text this morning, the focus is on the nature of true discipleship, which is nothing short of true Christianity. True disciples are true Christians. We'll see that there's a lot of potential disciples in our passage who are enthusiastic about Jesus, but Jesus is ultimately going to distinguish between true and false disciples. And it turns out that this reward idea is central to truly being a follower of Christ. We're going to see that True disciples delight in heavenly reward and as a result are dissatisfied with here and now realities and devoted to Christ's mission. So as we look at the passage before us, I invite you to consider if heavenly reward is fueling your discipleship this morning. God wants your pursuit of him to be marked by a delight in heavenly things. So will you allow God's word to test you this morning to see if you're truly living with a heavenly orientation? Are you open to God perhaps reorienting your perspective to make you a more devoted disciple today? He wants to help us with that. So let's look at our text together. Well, ever since Jesus launched his public ministry in Luke 4, we've seen him carrying out his mission of proclaiming God's kingdom. And last week, we saw Jesus prove that he's the Lord of the Sabbath and has authority to interpret and apply God's law, much to the chagrin of the scribes and Pharisees, who, verse 11 of chapter 6 tells us, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Well, the scene changes here in verse 12. Jesus is no longer among the hostile religious elites. And as he often does, he slips off on his own and he goes to a mountain to pray to God all night long. Now, why did Luke tell us about Jesus praying here? Well, it's not just a random detail. And it's certainly not to set some super high bar that we're supposed to shoot for in our prayer lives. That's not Luke's purpose. No, Luke records this prayer to highlight the significance of Christ's action the next day when he appoints 12 apostles. See, apostles are crucial to the establishment of Christ's kingdom. They're not optional players in his plan. They're essential. And so it makes sense for Jesus to spend time asking his Father in heaven for wisdom in choosing them. You know, I think we tend to view Jesus praying all night as if it's some superhuman feat. But Jesus was fully human, just as much as you and I are. I'm sure he was tired, but he's desperate for God's guidance. He's up all night because he feels the weight of the decision he has to make the next day. And so day comes and Jesus chooses 12 of his disciples to be apostles. These men are first and foremost disciples, but Jesus sets them apart for a particular role. Now, there's a lot that can be said about apostles. I mean, these are the guys who witnessed Christ's resurrection and 
wrote the New Testament and were the founding fathers of the church. They're super, super important. And, and Luke's going to say a lot more about these guys in his gospel as well as in the book of Acts. But for our purposes this morning, the key thing to understand about apostles is that they are ones who are sent on a mission. See, apostles are ambassadors. They're envoys. They're messengers proclaiming the message of the one who commissioned them. And that message is Christ's message. Remember that Jesus came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He says that explicitly in Luke 4.43 when he says, I was sent for this purpose. And so the fact that Jesus is appointing apostles suggests that they too have a role to play in furthering his mission. Back in chapter 5, we, we met some of these guys, Peter and James and John, when Jesus called them to be fishers of men. The rest of the apostles are listed here without a whole lot of detail, but it's clear that Luke wants us to identify them precisely. Not just Andrew, but Andrew, the brother of Peter. Not just Simon, but Simon, who was known as a zealot. Given the role that these men are to play in Christ's mission, it's key for Luke's readers to know who they are. After all, when Luke wrote this, a lot of them were still active. You know, there's a, a key detail in verse 13 that I don't want us to gloss over. Jesus calls his disciples to himself before choosing the apostles. Did you catch that? So, so day comes, he, he calls his disciples to himself, and then he select, selects from among them those who are going to be apostles. See, it's a public commissioning. Jesus is the team captain, if you will, picking out the specific players he wants for a specific role. And I think there's an important implication here that's going to get fleshed out in more detail later on in our text. See, while the apostles have a particular role in furthering Christ's mission, all of Christ's disciples in a more generalized way are also his ambassadors. Disciples and apostles share the same exact mission, even though apostles have a more prominent and specialized role in carrying out that mission. Well, when we look at the crowd of people drawn to Jesus in verse 17 to 19, it's obvious that he has become famous. I mean, just consider the sheer number of people who want to be around him. So he comes down from the mountain with his apostles and stands on a, on a flat place. And there's, the text says, a great crowd of his disciples there. And there's a great multitude of people there. And consider the diversity of this crowd. There's people from all over Judea, which included Jerusalem. And then there's people from Tyre and Sidon. And that's an interesting detail because those folks weren't Israelites. They're stinky Gentiles. And the cities of Tyre and Sidon aren't all that close by either. It's not like you could, you know, just grab an Uber or fly a plane to go see Jesus in that time. You had to walk there. And that would have been a strenuous, potentially a dangerous journey to make. See, this crowd is people who admire Jesus, and they're willing to go through great lengths to be with him. And notice the mindset of this great multitude in verse 18. They come to hear Jesus' teaching, 
and they come to be healed of their diseases. These people want to experience the blessings of Christ's ministry, and they want his word and his power to impact them. And Christ responds favorably. He cures those who are troubled by unclean spirits, and when the crowd presses against him, I mean, just picture that. Jesus is in the middle of this huge multitude, and they're all pressing against him. Power comes out from him, which is so effective that the text says he healed all of them. See, Jesus isn't dealing with hostile Pharisees and scribes anymore, like he was earlier in chapter 6. He's among fans, people who have come from all over the place to be with him because they're jazzed about Jesus. Really, this multitude is a multitude of potential disciples, you could say. And based on their enthusiasm about him, we, we might expect that all these folks truly are Christ's disciples. But Jesus makes it clear that this isn't the case as he begins to teach, starting in verse 20. So let's pick up our text there. Verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Well, here Jesus is beginning a sermon that takes us to the end of Luke chapter 6. It's known as the Sermon on the Plain, and there's debate about the exact relationship between this sermon and the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew because there's a lot of similarities. For the record, I think that these two sermons are distinct from each other. They have similar content, but the emphases are different. If you want to discuss that a little more, just ask me after the service. That aside, though, what we see here is Jesus distinguishing between true and false disciples. He makes that distinction positively in verse 20 to 23, and then he makes the distinction negatively in verse 24 to 26. And he makes the distinction using the language of blessing and woe. Now, in our culture, the word blessing has a fairly flexible, superficial meaning. Now, when we think of blessings, we might think of cheesy Hallmark cards or, you know, maybe the things we're thankful for on Thanksgiving. But to Jesus' audience here, the concept of blessing had a very significant connotation. You could translate this word as happy, and it's true that blessing does contain the idea of happiness, but it's more than a generic happiness that's in view here. To the Jews, blessedness meant being happy in an ultimate sense because you've found favor with God. 
the blessed person is the saved person. And so when Jesus says, blessed are you, he's, he's talking in salvific terms. Now, the upshot of the blessing that Jesus gives to his true disciples in verse 20 to 23 is heavenly reward. There's reward language all over the place in these verses. And the point that Jesus is making is that true disciples desire heavenly reward. And this desire for heavenly things has here and now ramifications on how they approach life. In Christ's first three blessings, we see that this orientation towards heaven produces a dissatisfaction with here and now realities. And he starts by saying, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, what does Jesus mean when he uses the term poor here? Well, it is true that his ministry tends to benefit the down and out, the outsiders. We've seen that all over the place in Luke. But primarily, this poorness has to do with your spiritual condition. Remember Mary's praise to God in Luke 1. She says, he has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he's exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. See, all this language is communicating that it's the humble, the lowly, you could say the spiritually poor, that are exalted in the end. And their awareness of heavenly things is what makes true disciples see themselves this way. You know, as sinners, we're born with a distorted view of ourselves. We don't naturally see ourselves as in poverty before God. We actually think we're pretty cool. But when we come face to face with heavenly things and the magnitude of God's holiness, the beauty of his character, we're not so high in ourselves anymore. We start seeing ourselves as poor before God. And Jesus says that it's people who see themselves this way who gain God's kingdom in the end. It's notable, I think, that in the Greek, what Jesus promises is in the present tense. He's saying, yours is the kingdom of heaven now. You already have it. The fact that you see yourself as poor indicates that this reward is yours, even as I'm speaking. And in his second blessing, Christ says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Now, this isn't just some generalized hunger, like when you're hungry because you missed breakfast and your stomach growls. No, this is the kind of hunger that comes upon you when you smell something delicious. You know, maybe this has happened to you. You're outside, walking around, perfectly content, and all of a sudden you, you smell whatever's cooking in that barbecue down the street. And, and you think to yourself, you think, man, that smells good. I'm hungry. And see, you're not just generally hungry in that moment. You're, you're hungry for whatever critter's smoking on that barbecue over there. You want that. See, true disciples catch the scent of heavenly reward and hunger for it. Once content with here and now delicacies, they crave superior heavenly food. Their mouths water at the thought of tasting Christ's righteousness. They eagerly await the banquet when they'll dine with God himself. 
Their appetite is for heaven's endless entrees, no longer for earth's limited menu. It's folks like this who hunger for heavenly reward who will ultimately be satisfied. And Jesus says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Well, why are they weeping? Well, again, it's because they see themselves in light of heavenly things. They recognize how unfit they are to receive heavenly blessing because of their sin. And they're sad about that. They long for the holiness that is necessary to be with God, and they mourn the present reality of sin that's incompatible with that holiness. But Jesus says that it's these people who will end up laughing in the end. And you know, as well as I do, that laughing and weeping, they don't go together. Laughing happens when you aren't burdened by anything. So Jesus promising future laughing means that these people won't need to weep about sin and its effects forever. That will all be taken care of one day. See, these descriptors, poor, hungry, weeping, they're all describing the same type of person. The person who's captivated by heavenly things. And that captivation leads to a godly dissatisfaction with here and now realities. True disciples don't settle for anything less than receiving the fullness of Christ's blessing. And they don't have any delusions about their self-righteousness or about finding gratification in earthly things. doesn't mean that they're grumpy and disgruntled about life under the sun. It just means that they aren't looking for ultimate satisfaction here and now. Their joy is lodged in something greater. Their affections have been elevated to heavenly things. And in verse 22 to 23, we see that heavenly reward also drives true disciples to devote themselves to Christ's mission. Now we saw a few minutes ago that Christ's disciples are to play a crucial role in furthering his mission. And here Jesus teaches that his disciples will face persecution as they do so. People are going to hate them. People will exclude them and revile them. People will spurn their names as evil. Now, you and I know that it's possible to be hated and excluded and reviled for for just being stupid. I mean, that's totally possible. But the rejection Jesus is talking about happens on account of the Son of Man, verse 22 tells us. That is on account of Jesus himself. And let's face it, when are you and I likely to be rejected because of Christ? Well, it's when we open our mouth and share the gospel with people. That's when this stuff is likely to happen. You know, you can be the sweetest, kindest Christian ever, and you should be that way. But if you don't tell people about the gospel, you know what they're going to think? They're going to think, wow, she's such a nice girl. He's such a great guy. See, your niceness won't actually save anybody. People need to hear God's word to be saved. And when you actually open your mouth and you start telling people the gospel, which includes some things that they don't want to hear, like about sin and judgment and the exclusivity of Christ, when you do that, a lot of people are going to hate your guts. 
And, and they'll probably say mean things about you behind your back, maybe even to your face. They might start excluding you. You might not be friends with them anymore. Doing something like that could cause serious relational tension, maybe even ramifications for you with your family or with your job. But this is what devotion to Christ looks like. It looks like advancing his kingdom even when it costs you. This is why Jesus compares his disciples to the prophets in verse 23. See, God's prophets only had one item on their job description, which was to proclaim God's word. And though we don't receive direct revelation from God anymore, like the prophets in Bible times, when we share the gospel with people, we're doing what the prophets did in the sense that we're proclaiming God's word. And if you know your Old Testament, you know that God's prophets have always been persecuted. Persecution is par for the course for prophets. And in the same way, it's a normal outworking of being a true disciple of Christ. But notice how heavenly reward keeps Christ's disciples on mission. Jesus says that they're blessed because persecution is actually an indicator that they have great heavenly treasure awaiting them. He says, rejoice on that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. He's saying, don't just rejoice inwardly. You ought to be jumping up and down like a baseball team that just won the World Series. You who've been persecuted because of me, your reward in heaven is going to knock your socks off one day. You see how this orientation towards heavenly reward distinguishes Christ's true disciples. It fuels their devotion to Christ, even in the midst of persecution. Well, after Jesus distinguishes true and false disciples positively, he then does the same thing negatively in verse 24 to 26. And he uses the term woe, which is an exclamation expressing a sense of profound grief in the face of impending disaster. That's what woe means. And it's not something you want to hear from Jesus. And what exactly characterizes these false disciples that Jesus is pronouncing woes on? Well, you can distill it down to this. It's a dullness to heavenly reward. He says, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. He's saying the rich person who stores up treasure on earth, your reward is already yours now. The reward you're getting is as good as it's going to get for you. That's what Jesus is saying. There's no future reward awaiting these people, just the certainty of judgment. And he says, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Now, false disciples don't have any appetite for heavenly reward. They're too busy filling their bellies with earthly delights. And Jesus says that one day they're going to be hungry. They're going to long for heaven when it's too late to get that anymore. Their fullness is momentary. Their hunger will be eternal. And he says, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. This type of person isn't thinking about eternal things. They're laughing it up, having a good time. But Jesus says they're going to mourn and weep. Ultimately, they're going to regret putting their hope in here and now pursuits. 
See, false disciples are easily satisfied with the fleeting pleasures of this life. They're quite pleased with themselves and and don't think that they're in any real danger. They haven't beheld the glory of heavenly things that would cause them to see themselves as poor and make them hunger for heavenly blessing and lead them to weep over sin. Moreover, verse 26 tells us that because of their dullness, false disciples disregard Christ's mission. They don't proclaim God's word to others. And why would they? Their focus is on this life, not the life to come. Therefore, they don't face any persecution. People speak well of them, just like their fathers spoke well of the false prophets. Now, it's important to remember that these false disciples that Jesus is talking about were part of the crowd that has come to hear him and to be healed. They're not just theoretical someone somewhere out there. They're real people that look a whole lot like true disciples at first glance. But closer examination proves that they are merely interested in Christ's benefits. They're not actually driven by his reward. Now I want to zoom out for a second and point out that when Jesus describes true and false disciples, he really isn't commanding anything. He's merely describing their characteristics. See, discipleship isn't primarily a matter of what you do. Discipleship is a reflection of who you are. You can't become a disciple by acting like a disciple. Rather, you act like a disciple because you already are one. See, God has to make you his disciple. It involves his saving intervention. Here's the problem, folks. The problem is that our affections, that is those strong inclinations of our hearts, have been twisted and distorted by sin. God created us to desire Him, to prize Him, to treasure Him. That's what righteousness is, to wholly desire God. And because Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, we come into this world desiring lesser things than God. Our affections are corrupt. See, to be Christ's disciples, we need God to give us new affections. We need Him to give us a new heart. And friends, Jesus is willing and he's able to do that. When he died on the cross to take the penalty of sin on himself, he not only died for sinful actions and thoughts and attitudes, he also died for all those underlying sinful affections. Isn't that great news? And when Jesus calls you to be his disciple, he gives you new affections. God gives you a new appetite for heavenly things that wasn't there before. You receive a new longing for God and a corresponding disdain for those corrupt desires that used to dominate you. I want you to get your arms around this because discipleship is a gift from God. It's nothing short of a miraculous affection makeover in your heart that changes you from a self-satisfied, dull person to a self-denying, Christ-devoted person. See, true discipleship is possible for you today because the gospel is powerful enough to change your heart. 
So as we look to apply this text to our lives this morning, I want to start by imploring any of you who are outside of Christ to ask God to make you his disciple today. And dear unbeliever, your problem isn't behavioral. Your problem is that you don't have an appetite for the heavenly things of God. Sin has dulled your senses. That's why you don't find the idea of living for Christ to be all that appealing. You need a breakthrough from God today. You need Him to give you new and holy affections that desire Him alone. So if God is pricking you today, if you're hearing His voice, run to Him. Surrender to Him. Ask Him to change you and make you new. He'll really do that for you if you really ask Him. My brothers and sisters in Christ, you know as well as I do that just because God has given us new affections, that doesn't mean that we still don't battle earthly desires. Yes, God has given us new desires that were foreign to us when we were unbelievers, but those affections aren't perfected yet. We still have to fight against the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the, the boastful pride of life, don't we? So as we continue to fight to cultivate godly desires, let me offer a few takeaways from this text. First, a caution. See satisfaction with here and now things as a threat to your soul. There's, there's a big difference between contentment with the here and now and finding ultimate satisfaction with the here and now. God wants us to be content, but contentment is really an attitude of being okay with the incompleteness of God's redemptive plan. Contentment doesn't lose sight of or stop desiring heavenly reward. Contentment is the attitude we exhibit in the meantime, while that heavenly reward isn't fully manifested. On the other hand, ultimate satisfaction with the here and now involves taking our sights off of our heavenly reward and pursuing fulfillment in other things instead. See the difference? The loving and enjoying your family is a good thing, but when your affections for your family make you less excited about heaven, that's a problem. Enjoying God's here and now blessings like friends and tasty food and sports and satisfying work, fill in the blank, that's fine and that's good. But allowing such things to dampen your excitement about your heavenly future is a problem. See, being ultimately satisfied with here and now things indicates that you're dull to heaven's reward. And those counterfeit satisfactions, if they're not identified and repented from, they'll certainly make you a less effective disciple of Christ and may even prove you to be a false disciple. A false disciple like some of those who came enthusiastically to hear Jesus and experience his healing but ultimately prove to be infatuated with other things. So believer, you ought to make it your practice to guard your heart with all diligence, to watch out for any sneaky little affections that dampen your excitement about God's reward. But also, don't fail to allow heavenly reward to motivate your discipleship of Christ. You know, I was thinking about this this past week. I think we're embarrassed 
about doing things to get a reward. We feel like there's something not quite right about that. And I think you can see this often when someone gets a prestigious reward and then goes up to give a speech afterwards because the expectation is that they should be happy but not too emotional about it. And so they come up to receive the reward and they're kind of stoic. And they're like, well, I want to thank my family and, and all who supported me through this. And, uh, you know, I was really just doing my duty. That's right, yeah, doing my duty. See, though we wouldn't say it like this, I think we feel that it's more spiritual to serve God simply out of a sense of duty, not because of heavenly reward. Though, but in our text, Jesus, he's not bashful about waving heaven in front of our noses as an incentive to being his disciple. The truth is that there's no actual contradiction between serving God because it's our duty and serving him because we delight in his reward. See, our duty is to desire God. The Westminster Catechism says it like this, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Delight is our duty. Delight yourself in God and the reward of having him and the nuts and bolts of living as his disciple will follow. So let's stop living like it's taboo or somehow less spiritual to be excited about heavenly reward. Jesus paid an incalculable price with his blood to win heaven for you. Don't you think he wants you to be excited about it? Don't you think he intends for you to be super stoked about such a precious reward? Let heaven fuel your devotion to Christ today. And let me offer one specific way that heaven's reward ought to fuel your discipleship of Christ. It ought to make you less hesitant to proclaim the gospel to people. Now, let's be honest with ourselves. The reason that you and I don't share the gospel with people that often is because we fear their rejection. We fear their reaction. We know that what Jesus says about persecution is true. Proclaiming Christ to the world undoubtedly leads to exclusion and hatred and rejection. And I think we tend to approach evangelism with this duty-driven mentality. I've just got to do it because Christ said I had to do it. It's kind of our approach. But do you see what a difference remembering heavenly reward can make in that area? Jesus blesses you when you experience rejection on account of his name. He even tells you to leap for joy because it's a sign that your reward is great in heaven. I remember when this truth really hit me one time, uh, back in college up in Canada, we used to go, there's a group of us that would go share the gospel at this French-speaking university, and students were fine with us being there. The faculty and staff didn't really like us proselytizing, and we actually got kicked off campus twice during my four years doing that, and I remember the second time this had happened, this is my senior year, uh, the security guard was writing us up, and, and he told us that if we ever set foot on that campus again to tell people about Jesus, that, that we would be banned for a year. And while this was happening, I had an overwhelming sense of joy 
because I had this text in my mind. And I was thinking that what was happening to me in that moment was a sign of future heavenly blessing. Now, I'm not saying that to say, hey, look what I did. I'm saying that as an example of how heavenly reward can help us even when we face opposition for telling people about Jesus Christ. See, I don't need to be embarrassed to say that God's going to reward me for that someday. And believer, when you proclaim the gospel to others, the worst that can happen is that you store up great reward for yourself in heaven by facing rejection. And of course, you might be part of someone getting saved too, which is pretty cool. So let the reality of heavenly reward drive you to devote yourself to Christ's gospel-proclaiming mission, even when it costs you. Brothers and sisters, let's let the certainty of heavenly reward have its intended effect on us today. Let's let it reorient our perspectives. Let's let it fuel our discipleship so that we become dissatisfied with the here and now and devoted to Christ's mission. May God give us the grace to desire Him and His reward above all else. Let's pray. Father, we come to You and, and we confess that we are far too dull about our heavenly reward. We confess to You that we need You to soften our hearts and to help us to be infatuated with heaven. Father, I pray that you would help us to be disciples that have our eyes on the prize and run the race that is set before us with endurance because we know that there is a glorious reward awaiting us in the end. Father, help us to repent of any affections for here and now things that are keeping that joy and that heavenly affection from really sprouting. And Father, help us to be devoted to you and your mission. Lord, we commit all these things to you. We thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.